what would Stalin think of his daughter defecting to the United States and becoming an American citizen? He'd be rolling in his grave faster than those figure skaters spin at the Olympics. That visual does not upset me one bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Doobie friends. Welcome back to Dubious. Hey, Sandra, how are you today? I'm doing great, Neil. And let's also welcome the people who are here for the first time. Hopefully they like us. Uh, how about you? How are you? How is the bear? That's my dog, by the way. She likes the cool, so this is a good week for her. She goes uh, on walks every evening and there's a little more wiggle in her wobble. <laughs> Cody likes the cooler weather too, he's more active at the dog park even, and by the way, I'm happy to report that I watched the boy, the boy is my dog Odie, he's a 10 year old lab mix, and I adopted him from the city shelter when he was a puppy, and he hates water, he hates being bathed, and he lets me wash him though, do whatever to him, clean his ears, trim his nails and so on, it's not a problem, it's just that he looks absolutely devastated the whole time, despite getting treats through the entire washing process, he has this like victim look on his face. <laughs> yeah, he looked like he was plotting your murder. So <laughs> she sent me a picture of this dog right after the bath. So he's got this scowl on his face when he's laying on his dog bed. <laughs> and the worst thing is, is there's a picture of the happy dog that looks like him on the wall above him. Yeah, I have a portrait of him <laughs> Yeah, and since we're talking about Stalin in this episode and his daughter, but we started a completely unrelated discussion about dogs, uh, let's just say that Stalin had a complicated relationship even with dogs. I mean, he had a dog he loved, a Russian black terrier, and he encouraged people to breed this type of dog, which came to be known as the Stalin dog. But he also promoted the very disturbing practice of attaching explosives to dogs and training them to run under German tanks in World War II. That's terrible. And this, like, kind of dual character trait that allowed him to be very loving to his daughter Svetlana, but at the same time a complete monster that killed and starved millions of people is a recurring theme in his life. Yes, so just a bit of background before we get to his daughter Svetlana Yosifovna Stalina, the most famous defector of the Cold War. Stalin was born on December 18, 1878 in Gori, in Georgia. Putin was born in Georgia too. Check out our episode about Putin's mother, everybody. And it seems that his official biography is manufactured and his biological mother might be a Georgian woman. And journalists investigating this story, shall we say, mysteriously died. Yeah, so it's probably true, and I think the episode is entitled Putin's Childhood, actually. But back to little Joseph Stalin, though. As a child, Stalin was badly beaten by his father, and then his mom kicked the dad out, and little Stalin was sent to school. And in 1893, his mom enrolled him in the seminary to become a priest. And there, Joseph was punished for the smallest digressions, put in solitary confinement in a stone-walled cave kind of dungeon for days on end. It kind of explains a lot. It said that after that experience, the only person Stalin feared and respected was his mother. Yes, and before he married his second wife, Svetlana's mother, Joseph Stalin, whose nickname as a young man was Soso, by the way, he loved another woman, and this was in his very early revolutionary days. Stalin had a friend, and this friend had three sisters who ran a haute couture fashion house in Tbilisi in Georgia. It was called Atelier Hervieux, 
and the young revolutionaries were using it as a place to meet and plan the revolution, and they hid their documents in the mannequins. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Imagine a room full of counts and generals sort of chit-chatting while their wives were being fitted. And uh, Soso and his buddies were planning the revolution the very next room over among, like, the scissors and the fabrics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Anyway, Soso Stalin married one of the sisters, Ekaterin Katos Vanidze, and they had a son together, but she died of typhoid fever in his arms, and he was destroyed. He was completely devastated because he really did love her, but he abandoned his son, Yakov, Uh, left him with his mother-in-law and the two other sisters and went on to continue on his revolutionary path. And there's a lot of things that happened between this point and the time of Lenin's death, when Stalin rose to power in the Soviet Union. But we're focusing on family life and mostly his daughter Svetlana in this episode. So who was Stalin's second wife, Svetlana's mother? Stalin's second wife, Nadezhda Sergeyevna Lilyeva, was a revolutionary too, and they've known each other since forever, apparently. Their families were friends. And Stalin saved her from drowning when she was just a few years old. Anyway, when they married, she was still a child. Basically, she was 16 and he was 39, so 23 years older than her. I mean, some sources say she was 18. Either way, that's just disturbing. That's predatory behavior right there. But I guess at the time, in 1919, it was, you know, socially accepted. Nadezhda played an important role in Stalin's rise to power. Even though she was extremely young, she was working as a secretary for Lenin and helped him navigate the sort of intrigue and inner workings of the party once Lenin was gone. Yes, I mean, Nadezhda means hope in Russian, actually. And anyway, at the beginning, Stalin was perceived, just like Putin was, as a low-key, meek figure, but he proved to be a very cunning functionary who rose to power really fast. With Nadezhda's help, in 1922, Joseph Stalin becomes General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and then, after Lenin's death in 1924, he assumes full control over the country. By this time, Nadezhda had already given birth to their first child in 1921, a son named Vasily. The same year, Stalin brought his son by his first wife, Yakov, to live with the family. Stalin also adopted a boy, Archem Sergeyev. His father was a good friend of Stalin, but he died in a train crash. And then, on February 28, 1926, their daughter Svetlana was born. And by all accounts, at this point, they were a happy family. Stalin loved Nadezhda, she loved him, everything was going great. One interesting detail that I plucked for you guys from an exceptional book I read in preparation for this episode. Uh, The book is entitled Stalin's Daughter, written by Rosemary Sullivan, and I recommend it wholeheartedly. Uh, It's on Audible too, so one detail is that apparently, at these early happy stages of their marriage, Stalin's only complaint about Nadezhda was that she wore Chanel number 5, and Stalin was torn about it because he sometimes loved it and sometimes hated it, depending on how revolutionary he felt on any given day. (laughs) (laughs) Chanel number 5 does not exactly scream uh, revolution, socialism, for the party, for the motherland, does it? (laughs) No, it doesn't. And starting with 1927, Stalin's power is absolute, and he starts the forced collectivization of agriculture at this point, 
people start starving to death. We're talking millions of people. Yeah, we did an episode about Stalin's uh, starvation genocide in the Ukraine, the Holodomor, a few weeks ago. Yes, uh, and after the birth of their kids, Nadezhda wants to continue her studies and goes to university and she starts seeing what's going on with regular people. She starts hearing from other people. At this point, she's the only one in the family that actually leaves the Kremlin. So she has all this information that Stalin doesn't, apparently. So she tells him, but he won't hear about it. He can't face the fact that his policies are failing and people are dying of hunger. And just to highlight what an important figure in Soviet history Nadezhda was, one of her university friends was Nikita Khrushchev. She actually introduced him to Stalin. Yeah, and Khrushchev goes on to become party secretary, and after Stalin's death, he becomes the new all-powerful Soviet leader. Um, but at this point, Stalin and Nadezhda's relationship starts to face some issues as his collectivization doesn't go according to plan and she's focused on her studies, but also tries to convince him to relax these crazy agricultural policies. So he starts to resent Nadia for telling him the truth about people and especially children dying of starvation. Yeah, he didn't like being faced with his own failures. I mean, nobody does, but especially a dictator, I suppose. This is where his sort of narcissistic personality starts to show. Yes, this is where his cruelty starts to come to the surface and his whole megalomaniacal, you know, side of him. So I think this is where my dubimeter alarms start going off. Nevertheless, despite the marriage starting to encounter a rocky period, Stalin's relationship with his children was pretty good. In all fairness, he didn't seem to care that much about Yakov, Vasily, or Artyom, but he was completely in love with Svetlana, and he liked to call her Little Sparrow and hug her all the time. We'll post some of these pictures of Svetlana as a toddler and uh, Stalin in our social media. Sadly, the marriage with Nadezhda keeps deteriorating, and by the end of the 1920s, um, Nadia was unhappy. There were rumors Stalin had started to beat her. She was now very quiet in public at party meetings. She was very much changed and looked depressed, and she was also disillusioned with how the revolutionary ideals uh, she believed in, you know, they were no longer reflecting the better life for all people. In fact, she was very affected by what was happening, the people starving, her husband's refusal to relax these draconic collectivization measures. On November the 7th, 1932, the Stalin family, the party elite, and the whole of the Russian people celebrated the 15th anniversary of the revolution. After the parades in the streets and the pageantry and all of this display of public loyalty to Stalin, a party in the Kremlin was organized. Yes, and Stalin got drunk and he started flirting with other women. There were already rumors that he had mistresses at this point. Nadia was silent as usual, so Stalin got irritated and mad at her for not being more lively and for refusing to drink alcohol, so he started throwing orange peel and breadcrumbs at her, and he even hit her in the what eye. What an asshole. <laughs> I know, I know. He told her, hey, start drinking, to which she responded, I'm no hey to you, and then this verbal exchange spiraled into a fight. She left the party and went to her bedroom. By this time, they were already sleeping in separate rooms. And Stalin stayed and continued drinking and flirting with other women for the rest of the evening. Yeah, and it is the last time Nadezhda is seen alive. In the morning, a maid entered her room to bring her breakfast and found her lying on the floor with a gunshot wound to the temple. 
Now, there are two theories here about what happened that night, and there are people supporting each of these two scenarios. Some say that Stalin killed Nadia, some say that she committed suicide, but from everything I've read and the documentaries we've watched and we've talked about it, we are both inclined to believe that Stalin was outside the Kremlin that night, people who attended that party saw him leaving after midnight with a mistress, and he allegedly went to his dacha with her. And he came back in the morning quite late and still drunk. And another reason why I am personally inclined to believe he did not kill Nadia is because after her death, he had a picture of Nadia enlarged and framed and hanged in his living room. I mean, not exactly what the murderer would do, no matter how evil Stalin was. We know he didn't like to be reminded of bad things he's done. So seeing his dead wife, whom he allegedly killed every single day, doesn't strike me as something he would choose. Also, he was very mad at Nadia, and he was mad at the uncle who gave her that gun as a gift, and I think he later sent him to the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> that seems the most likely, yeah. Anyway, Stalin decided that a ruptured appendix would be the official cause of Nadia's death, as a suicide was not a good look for the party. Suicide isn't a thing that uh, good communists would do. There's just, uh, everybody's happy there. So this is the same reason they don't have serial killers or child murderers or anything, despite there being <laughs> one at a box factory in the 80s. Exactly. Communists don't get depression, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so the first doctors uh, asked to give this conclusion refused to sign the autopsy report. So they were detained and then executed, and new doctors were brought in, and these new doctors unanimously agreed that Nadia died of peritonitis, a ruptured appendix. Yeah, so. <laughs> At her grave, Stalin said she departed as an enemy. See, that's why I think he didn't kill her. You can't read frustration. Uh, and the fact that he was so mad at her, he wouldn't have been mad if he had killed her. He also said to one of his party officials that the kids will recover, but he doesn't know how to get over this. And again, he seemed really upset at her. Like, you would be upset at someone who commits suicide, someone you love still. Yeah, I mean, we'll never really know what transpired that night, but I don't think he killed her either. Either way, Svetlana and her brothers were told their mom died after the surgery to remove the appendix, uh, during which there were complications. Yes, and Svetlana was just six years old when her mother died, her brother Vasily was 11, and her half-brother Yakov was 25. So in a way, it makes a bit of sense that Stalin focused a lot of his attention on Svetlana. She was the youngest, still a baby, basically. But as we'll see, Vasily, who was also a child, you know, at that time, suffered a great deal. And in fact, right around this period, right around their mother's death, he starts drinking at just 11 years old. Stalin, as we said, really loved his daughter Svetlana. In fact, they had their little father-daughter games. For example, he would pretend to be party secretary, and she would be the party leader. So Svetlana would give him orders written on little pieces of paper that she would pin on a board near his desk. And uh, some of these notes apparently still exist. In order number three, she orders him to take her to the movies to see an American comedy. And he responded, I obey my lady. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, he seems like a decent dad. In other notes or letters yeah. from Svetlana, he answers with your poor peasant servant. I mean, look, that's heartwarming, but let's not forget that at the same time, kids younger than Svetlana and their parents 
are dying all over the Soviet empire, let's call it that. You know, it was really big back then, especially in Ukraine, which was part of the USSR. And that's only because uh, as a result of Stalin's collectivization and industrialization policies. Exactly. That capacity he had uh, to be loving and caring, but also a monster at the same time. And as we said at the beginning, we're talking about his dogs. Kind of like Putin, he is also loving and caring with his kids, but not anyone else. And he was also meek and important functionary uh, slash clerk in the St. Petersburg City Hall until he wasn't. Uh, We talked about Putin's rise to power in two of our premium episodes. And just like Stalin, Putin had no scruples killing people who had been close to him. I mean, he murdered his best friend and mentor, used the doorknob to poison him, of all things. I mean, it's an insane story. (laughs) Yeah, we do two premium episodes a month, everybody, exclusively available to our patrons. So if you like our content for less than the price of a fancy coffee, you can become a patron on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. You'll get all our free episodes plus the premium ones ad-free. But as you know, not drama-free. We're both drama queens, so especially me. (laughs) Yes, you are, and yes, we are. (laughs) So after Nadia's death, Stalin's nature changes for the worse. Stepan Mikoyan, who was a friend of Svetlana's and the colleague of Vasily in the Air Force too, said that this is when the all-night, every-night dinner party started. There was lots of drinking and attendance was compulsory. Stalin would make the party higher-ups drink until they passed out, especially his inner circle, so the most important party officials. He thought that if he gets them drunk, he can see if they are loyal to the cause, you know, in vino veritas, in wine the truth. So Stepan remembers that his father had to attend these dinners and would come home wasted, barely able to function. And the thing is, his dad didn't like alcohol, wasn't used to it, so (laughs) yeah. So all the Politburo members had to attend, and Mikoyan's dad was the first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers. He said you never knew where you'd end up after these parties, at home or in jail. So (laughs) everyone was terrified. Some people had to be hospitalized after almost uh, ending up in an alcohol coma. I think these dinner parties that lasted all night were the first signs that Stalin was starting to get a little paranoid. So he's afraid of traitors and trying to keep people close who he thinks might undermine him. These may be the first indications of the, you know, the purge, which starts in the mid-1930s, when uh, innocent people, including members of Stalin's own family and close friends, were either sent off to the gulags or executed. Right. And by this time, besides Svetlana, everyone else started fearing Stalin. Even his own sons, especially Vasily, was terrified by his father. And outside of these parties, Stalin starts spending more and more time at his dacha in Moscow. It's important to mention here that despite the official policy that party members and people should be modest and value unity and their dear leader above all else, Stalin and his kids lived in extreme luxury. In fact, one could argue that he had everything that Tsars had and more. You know, he didn't practice what he preached, like all dictators. So Svetlana grew up surrounded by all the fine things she wanted, even though she was by nature a very down-to-earth child. She loved literature, foreign languages. She enjoyed poetry, especially. She loved animals. She was spoiled, but somehow she had a good character and she wasn't extravagant or prone to showing off like most kids would be, you know. 
She was very interested in forbidden books her father outlawed and would later get those books via school colleagues and other acquaintances. And it is at this point in our story in 1936 and 1937 that Stalin's Great Purge reaches its peak. Yeah, the Great Terror began at this point. So this was Stalin's campaign to sort of eliminate all competitors from the party and the state. The purge was also designed to remove the remaining influence of Trotsky. So anybody deemed a threat by Stalin, including the wives of party leaders, were either executed or sent off to the gulags. Molotov's wife, Polina, was sent to the gulag, for example. Mm -hmm. Lavrenzi Beria, for example, who became head of the NKVD around that time, was later executed when Nikita Khrushchev came to power. I mean, karma! And there are photos of Svetlana on Beria's lap with Stalin in the background working at his desk. It makes you wonder how being surrounded by these men, basically murderers, affected Svetlana. Stalin had lists of people he suspected of not being 100% loyal, and he would write near their names, execute, 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 and then he would give these lists to the head of the NKVD, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which later became KGB and now it's known as FSB, and those people... Uh, would ensure that his orders are carried out. And some of the men sentenced to death and women were parents of Svetlana's colleagues at school. So she would come home crying and pleading with Stalin to have so-and-so dad spared or so-and-so mom's, uh, you know, sentence commuted. Or she would bring him letters given to her by parents of her friends asking him to intervene and save someone's mother, father, sister, and so on. She was 10 years old at this time. So... Think about it. In her mind, her father was the good guy. It was other people around him who did these bad things, and she thought she could help him see who the bad people were. Yes, so obviously she went to an elite school where the creme de la creme of party officials' children went to. So naturally, a lot of these kids had parents who were killed in the purge or imprisoned, as all these people had political functions and were a potential threat to Stalin. And initially, 10-year-old Svetlana was successful in saving people. Stalin could not stand to see her cry, so he would commute their sentences. But as time passed, he didn't listen to her anymore. In fact, he started arresting members of their own family, aunts, uncles. It was insane. His paranoia kept growing. He even wanted to arrest Svetlana's nanny, but Svetlana got so upset that he gave up. (laughs) And she became very lonely. So did her two brothers. Kids at school were afraid to be close to them. So their parents probably told them to make sure not to upset the Stalin kids. So Svetlana started to withdraw, and she was surrounded by staff, but not a lot of friends her age. Stalin took Svetlana with him when he visited Maxim Gorky. He had arranged a play date between Svetlana and Marfa Peshkova, Gorky's granddaughter, who was about the same age as Svetlana. So Marfa and Svetlana became best of friends and started spending a lot of time together at Stalin's dacha. One day, Svetlana was reading a magazine in English, and there was an article and a photo of her mom in the coffin, and that's how Svetlana found out that her mother did not die from the ruptured appendix. But Svetlana never confronted her father, which tells me that on some level, even Svetlana was afraid of her own father. 
Yes, and when she was about 14, 15 years old, Svetlana was already reading Goethe, Schiller, and Dostoevsky, despite the fact that her father banned these books. Like all dictators, Stalin loved banning books, like the GOP is doing now. And it's said that Svetlana loved Hemingway for whom the bell stole, you know, a book that was banned in Russia as soon as it was published right before World War II. And this is when Svetlana starts to get a better understanding of what kind of a man her father really is. And she later said in one of the first interviews she gave in the United States that she was struggling. She had mixed contradictory feelings about her dad. The same person who was merciless to his political enemies, he could be at the same time rather kind and tender with his favorite child. Everything was there. <laughs> Cruelty was there and and uh, sending fruits and uh, writing tender letters to his daughter was also there. At school, she had one single friend who was from a poorer family, but they were intellectuals. All the kids bullied her friend Olga, but Svetlana defended her and they became very close. Olga said in an interview that Svetlana was her best and only friend and she was kind and very humble and smart. And she didn't even find out until later the real birth date of her father. Stalin always pretended to be one year younger. Yes, and when she was 15, World War II started. Yakov, Vasily, and her adopted brother Artyom were sent to the front days after the German invasion. Yakov and Artyom joined the artillery and Vasily became a pilot. Sadly, Yakov got captured by the Nazis. After Stalingrad, the Nazis offered to exchange him for Field Marshal Friedrich Paulus. Stalin responded, I'm not going to exchange a soldier for a field marshal. So, I mean, Yakov committed suicide in a concentration camp. He threw himself on an electrified fence. And there is a photo of him on that fence, which I'm sure Svetlana and her other two siblings saw. I mean, other sources say he was shot by the Nazis. Either way, what a terrible death. I mean, knowing your own father doesn't think you are valuable enough to be saved. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I think it's fair to say that this event changed her and her brothers forever when the time they found out that their brother was dead and their father said, well, sorry, he's not worth a German general. For sure. And of all her siblings, Svetlana loved Yakov the most. He was the closest to her, actually. And Stalin, after Yakov was captured arrested Yaakov's wife and sent her to Lubyanka for being Jewish, basically. He didn't like her to begin with, but now that his son, her husband, was dead, he just imprisoned his daughter-in-law, just insane. It's incredible how cruel this man was, and it's equally surprising how well Svetlana turned out. I mean, she had her issues, as we'll see, but all in all, with such a dad and a mother who passed away when she was a baby... I'd say Svetlana beat the odds. Yeah, Svetlana spent the war in Sochi. Stalin wanted her there to be safe, and she passed the time reading and studying. Unlike her father, she loved foreign cultures, but she was only permitted to ever be in either Sochi or Moscow. So she was 29 by the time she first visited Leningrad. In contrast, Stalin hated traveling. Once in power, he left the Soviet Union only twice. And Vasily and Svetlana tried at this point to distance themselves from their father, but it's a hard task to accomplish when your family name is Stalin. 
Plus, they have all the security details, like, you know, keeping an eye on them and all that stuff at any moment. So Vasily tries to focus on his career in the Air Force, but he struggles with alcoholism. He eventually becomes a general, but only because he was, you know, the prince, Stalin's son. He was talented. He was. And he was smart, but he did drink a lot. And he's the brother who started drinking since he was 10, as we said. And he will later die of cirrhosis, brought on by alcoholism. So he really died young at 41 years old. Artyom, the adopted son, was older and he's the only male Stalin kid who ended up having a long life and became a major general in the army and he passed away of old age at 86. Are you really surprised about Vasily, though? I mean, it seems each of the kids tried their best, but with that father... I mean, agreed. They coped the best they could, and I think Artyom only made it to old age simply because he was 30 when everybody else was like all his other siblings were young, right? So that mattered. And Stalin was very controlling. Also, Svetlana at this point, for example, she wants to study literature, but Stalin wants her to study history, so she has to comply. I mean, they're not that much different. They both fall under like almost the same department. It's not too far off. yeah. Exactly. One has more footnotes. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's now 16 years old, and she fell in love with Alexei Kapler, a very well-known and respected Soviet filmmaker at the time. But Alexei was 20 years older than her, and he was Jewish. So when she told Stalin about her new boyfriend, Stalin shouted at her, Couldn't you find yourself a Russian boy? And then he had Alexei arrested and sent to the Gulag for 10 years. Yes, and look, Kapler was 36 and Svetlana was 16. That's my problem. Stalin's problem, though, was that he was Jewish. It's crazy that Stalin wasn't bothered by the massive age difference. Instead, it was the Jewish part that upset him. (laughs) Well, I mean, he married her mother when she was 16, too, and he was 39, So it's not like he could have made a big deal about the age difference, I don't think. You know, people in glass houses. (laughs) Exactly. Either way, Stalin is clear by now, hated Jewish people. So Svetlana tries to cope the best she can, but she refuses to be intimidated by her father and she rebels the only way she knows how. She starts a relationship with Grigory Morozov, who was also Jewish and Stalin... Feeling guilty for sending her first boyfriend to the Gulag, reluctantly accepts Morozov. She marries him, but the union does not last long. Grigory and Svetlana don't click well, and there are rumors that her husband didn't really care for Svetlana. He married her for her status as Kremlin princess. Either way, Svetlana becomes a mother for the first time at just 19 years old, and her firstborn son is named Joseph. After their divorce, her ex-husband lost his job, and her father-in-law was arrested. Stalin still could not refrain himself, even when it came to family members, just like that grandfather of his own grandchild. No, he can't. He really can't. And now he wants to find a husband for Svetlana that he approves of. So he makes a short list of names, among which Stepan Mikoyan, who was already married, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But Stalin didn't care anyway. So Svetlana eventually agrees to marry another man, Yuri Zdanov, uh, the son of a Politburo member, but their marriage collapses just as quickly as her first one. She now, though, has a second child, a daughter named Yekaterina. 
and she lives with her two kids in an apartment provided by the party and tries to cope with life as a single mother as best she can. And also to clarify, she has everything she needs, obviously, right? But she was never an extravagant person. Her apartment was rather frugal, but she's not living in poverty. So Stalin died on March the 5th of 1953 from a stroke, and Svetlana was the only one in the family he asked for on his deathbed. Even though their relationship was difficult in those later years, she did mourn him. I think she equally hated him as much as she loved him, which is a tough spot for a daughter, I suppose. Yes, and not long after the state funeral, Svetlana starts using her mother's maiden name, Aliluyeva. She just wanted a normal life, not to be under the microscope all the time, and she continued to be interested in literary events, she mingles with intellectuals, on the down low though, as free speech was not really free even now. And around this time, Vasily, her brother, is demoted and then sentenced to eight years in prison, and as we mentioned, he died at 41 from cirrhosis, from alcoholism, and was buried near their mother, Nadezhda. So in the late 1950s and early 60s, Svetlana lived reclusively. She took care of her children and wrote her memoirs, 20 Letters to a Friend. That was the title of her manuscript. And she was very connected to writers and poets in Moscow. And I think the literary world was sort of her lifeline at this point. Mm -hmm. And then in 1963, while in hospital for a tonsillectomy, Svetlana met Kunwar Brajes Singh, an Indian politician who worked sometimes as a translator in Moscow, and they fell in love. Singh was mild-mannered and well-educated, but he was very ill. He had emphysema and his lungs were in really bad shape. The romance grew deeper and stronger still, uh, while the couple were recuperating in Sochi by the Black Sea. Then Singh returned to Moscow in 1965 to work as a translator this time, but he and Svetlana were not allowed to marry, even though they really tried to get married. The party still ruled her life. As Stalin's daughter, she was royalty in a way, the princess in the Kremlin, so they didn't allow her to really live her life how she wanted. Singh died the following year in 1966, and Svetlana was devastated. And she thought after her father's death that Russia really would become a more free country, but in fact, those who dissented were still imprisoned. Any literary work that displayed even a bit of disagreement with the party was banned. And the authors were sent off to the work camps and the gulags, just like everybody else uh, close to Stalin. Abortion was now being banned, too. So things really were not that much different. Uh, the writers she knew had disappeared in the middle of the night, uh, just like they used to when Stalin was in power. So nobody was really free. Yes, and her mom, Nadia, killed herself when she was a baby. Her brother, Yakov, killed himself in Nazi captivity because their father refuses to save him. Her other brother, Vasily, dies of alcoholism. The first man she truly loved had been sent to the Gulag by her own father. Her two marriages disintegrated. And by the way, some say neither of her husbands treated her well. You know, she was known to be depressed. She had early menopause, horrible headaches. She was not happy. And her last name was Stalin. And now just when she meets a man she really loves and admires, he dies. I mean, it's not a happy story at all. Her son Joseph is 12 years old and her daughter Yekaterina is just seven and she loved her children, but she never felt free in Russia. And for good reason, because she was always under surveillance, actually. You know, she was followed everywhere as expected. 
So when Singh died, she repeatedly tried to obtain permission to travel to India to take his ashes home to his family. I mean, she referred to him as her husband in 1967, but they were never allowed to marry officially. Anyway, the party denied the request for quite some time, but eventually did approve a one-week trip to India. And once in India, she loves it there. She loves his family, loves the people, the food, the culture. She is completely blown away of how different things were there. And she arranges to open a hospital dedicated to Kunwar in his memory, in his village, actually. And she overstays her visa and tries to persuade the Soviet ambassador in Delhi to allow her to stay a bit longer. But the Kremlin was getting antsy. They wanted her back in Moscow ASAP. So one evening, she tells the Soviet ambassador, fine, give me my passport, I'm flying out tomorrow. Relieved to finally get her off his hair, he gave her the passport, despite the fact that that was completely against Soviet practices. Without exception, at the time, any Russian visiting a foreign country had their passport taken upon entry in that country and only given back in the airport before boarding the plane back to Russia. But Vetlana got lucky. Indeed. That evening, there was a big party at the Russian embassy. They were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the revolution, and Svetlana learned a thing or two in all of her years being surveilled and having security follow her everywhere. So she took advantage of this. She made sure her room looked as if she was still packing up for her trip back to Russia the next morning and packed a separate smaller bag with just photos of her children and a few other mementos of her life back in Russia. She also managed to have a friend drop by uh, to give her her own manuscript. It's a complicated story, but she couldn't bring it herself to India as the Russians would have found it at the airport in her luggage. Some say it was the Indian ambassador who helped her. And anyway, with her tiny little bag that didn't look bigger than a purse, she stepped out of the Russian embassy. And at 9 p.m. that evening on March 9th, 1967, Svetlana walked in the American embassy in Delhi. After she stated her desire to defect in writing, the United States ambassador, Chester Bowles, offered her political asylum and a new life in the United States. I mean, that's the short version. It was a bit more complicated than that. But this is what Bowles said. At about 9 o'clock p.m. in India, 11 in the morning, Washington time, I said, I have a person here who states she's Stalin's daughter. And we believe she's genuine. Unless you instruct me to the contrary, I'm putting her on the 1 a.m. plane for Rome where we can stop and think the thing through. I'm not giving her any commitment that she can come to the States. I'm only enabling her to leave India and we will see her to some part of the world, the U.S. or somewhere else where she can settle in peace. If you disagree with this, let me know before midnight. No comment ever came from Washington. This is one advantage that non-career ambassadors have. They can go ahead and do unorthodox things without anybody objecting, whereas a foreign service officer might not dare to do this. And we talked to her and said, point number one, are you really sure that you want to leave home? You've got a daughter and a son there, and this is a big step to take. Have you really thought this through? You could go back to the Russian embassy right now and simply go to sleep and forget it and get up Wednesday morning and go on to Moscow as your schedule calls for. She immediately said, if this is your decision, I shall go to the press tonight and announce that one, a democratic India will not take me. And two, a democratic America refuses to take me either. And just like that, Stalin's daughter defected to America. Did she plan this defection months in advance, or was it an impulse thing triggered by the Soviets' refusal to allow her to spend more time in India? She says it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. 
the fact that she had her mementos and letters from Stalin with her indicate that it was not a completely spontaneous defection, but more complicated. Italy never admitted when she was even in Rome, so she was a bit of a hot potato. She got sent to Switzerland for six weeks. She almost did not get asylum at all. It was a bit touch and go for a moment, but she finally made it, and in April of 1967, she arrived in New York, and America loved her. The press loved her, too. In Russia, the party said she was mentally unstable, uh, so they put out these defamatory articles about her saying that she was undergoing a nervous crisis and suffered from hysteria and that the CIA is taking advantage of her. But obviously, you know, all of this would have been a massive blow to Russian propaganda. So this was the middle of the Cold War and their favorite daughter had defected to the Americans, to their enemies. Yes, of course, they slandered her. They even had a code name for her, Kukushka, which means cuckoo, like, you know, like crazy, but is also a name given to an escaped convict. Anyways, Vetlana's life here was not very happy in the U.S. as the years passed by, unfortunately. She published her book, 20 Letters to a Friend, which was a great success and earned her almost $1 million, despite the fact that the KGB-affiliated journalist got her manuscript and published it first in Russia, cutting out the most important parts, the parts where she criticized the party and the horror Stalin did. That way, for the Russian people, when the real complete book came out, it was of no interest anymore, as they all thought they've already read it. <laughs> and after living several months in Milneck, Long Island, under Secret Service protection, Svetlana moved to Princeton, New Jersey, where she lectured and wrote, and then later moving again to Pennington and then to Wisconsin. Then she experimented with various different religions. She visited different places and loved driving around a lot. Um, I think she was trying to find out who she was. Yes, and in 1970, Svetlana Aliluyeva answered an invitation from Frank Lloyd Wright's widow, uh, Olgivana, to visit Wright's winter studio, Taliesin West, in Scottsdale, Arizona. She then married William Wesley Peters, the world-famous architect and vice president of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, and she started going by Lana Peters afterwards. The truth is, he spent almost all of her money from her book because, one, he wasn't rich. In fact, he had massive debts, which Svetlana paid. And two, Svetlana did not care about money. All she wanted was a happy family life. She was also trying hard to get in contact with her two kids back in Russia, hoping she would one day be able to be reunited with them. And Olgivana and William were convinced Svetlana has millions of dollars in a Swiss account, like hidden there, which was not true. And according to Svetlana, life at the Taliesin Fellowship had cult-like vibes. Everything was commonly owned. Doors had to be open at all times. Olgivana would just pop in their bedroom or call at 3 a.m. It wasn't an affair they were having. Olgivana was much older. It was just a very weird influence she had on William. And then Svetlana and William had their daughter together, Olga, and the relationship just got worse. So in 1978, Svetlana, now Lana Peters, became a U.S. citizen, and in 1982, she moved with her daughter to Cambridge, England, where they shared an apartment near the Cambridge University Botanical Gardens. Then in 1984, during a time where Stalin's legacy saw a little bit of rehabilitation in the Soviet Union, she moved back to Moscow together with her daughter Olga, and both were given Soviet citizenship. 
She told the Russian press at the time that America is just like Russia, people are just oppressed in other ways. But in all fairness, we know she was trying to get in contact with her two older children who were adults by now and potentially convince them to move to the United States with her and Olga. That didn't work out. She was under surveillance again at all times. She did try to call her son Joseph repeatedly, and the first time they could barely say hello, and then the phone line was dead. So I can see why she would say negative things about the US. Not that there were no negative things in the US, but compared to Russia, we had it way better, let's be honest. So in 1986, she moved back from Russia to the US with Olga, and after her return, denied anti-Western comments she made while back in the USSR. And it's important to mention that throughout her life in America, her finances went from bad to worse. She did not really know how to handle money, nor did she care much about it. She was a very poetic and literary person, despite starting to be increasingly recalcitrant as she grew older. There's footage of her snapping at journalists, actually. She had this belligerent attitude in her old age. Who wouldn't be snappy after such a life? And I'll relate it, but I gotta say it before I forget. She also tried to marry Olga, her youngest daughter, the American daughter, to a journalist who was interviewing her for The New Yorker, I think, or Vanity Fair, but he was already married. (laughs) I mean, sometimes we end up doing some of the things our parents tried to do to us. Anyway, sadly, on November 22, 2011, Svetlana died of colon cancer, destitute, basically, at the Richland Center, a care home in Wisconsin. And she had started her life in the Kremlin, lived in luxury, and ended her life in a care home in America. Olga, Svetlana's daughter with Peters, the American architect, now goes by the name Sharice Evans. And as far as we know, she lives in Portland, Oregon. Her older daughter, Yekaterina, is a volcanologist in Siberia. Her firstborn son, Joseph, a cardiologist, died in Russia in 2008. And Joseph's son, Ilya, was previously in a relationship with Boris Berezovsky's daughter, Elizaveta, with whom he has a son, Sava. That's crazy. I didn't know that. I mean, Boris Berezovsky, guys, if you remember, he was a Russian oligarch who helped Putin to power, but then regretted it and started speaking against him. And there were several assassination attempts ordered by Putin, but uh, Berezovsky survived until he was found hanged in his bathroom. I mean, long story short, the suicide theory didn't hold water because the marks on his neck didn't match those you'd get from hanging yourself they matched strangulation from behind. So he was killed. Yeah, we talked about Berezovsky in quite a few of our Putin episodes, especially the two premium episodes about his rise to power. Anyway, the story of Svetlana Yosifovna Stalina, later Aliluyeva and then Peters, is really one of the lesser known stories of Cold War defections. And to be honest, every character in it could have had their own episode. In fact, we really struggled to compress the chronology of it into just one episode. So, Sandra, what's your dubimeter for this episode? Scale from 1 to 10. 20. This story is crazy from beginning to end, and not enough people know it, despite the fact that Svetlana is the most famous defector of the Cold War. So, for Stalin's American daughter, my dubimeter skyrockets to 20. So, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Yes, and if you did, you guys know we love feedback, and I personally love reviews, so please leave us your review on whatever app you're listening to us now. Five stars, too. I love five stars. (laughs) That's it. We are at DubiousPod on all of your social medias, and that's all we have for this week. See you guys next week. We love you. 